What's going on? And welcome into this week's edition of the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. I'm Daniel Salerson, joined by my co-host for the upcoming uh, podcast. That's Jim Eikenhofer of Pelicans.com. We're going to start getting you ready for the NBA draft, which is scheduled for November 18th. We're going to go picks 1 through 12 leading up to the New Orleans Pelicans at pick number 13. And there's no better place to start than with the number one pick in the Minnesota Timberwolves. And to help us out with that, we welcome in John Krasinski senior writer for The Athletic who covers the Timberwolves, the NBA, and also the Minnesota Vikings of the NFL. John, I appreciate the time. Hope this offseason is treating you guys well. Yeah, it's been a long offseason, as you guys know as well, so it's a little different that way, but uh, things are going good. We're plugging along and about ready to get into the action here with the draft, so I'm excited for that. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. And it's really interesting, John, as far as the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, finally getting a break there in the lottery with the number one pick overall. Um, kind of what's been the overall mood there, knowing that, you know, the, the clock is on the Minnesota Timberwolves come November 18th. Yeah, it's kind of been uh, mixed emotions. Number one, uh, you know, this is an organization that has been in the lottery a million times and had never improved its position before this year. So to get the number one pick to have the lottery balls bounce, bounce their way for once is uh, something to be celebrated. And they're very excited about having, the, the top being at the top of the draft and sort of being able to dictate things a little bit from there. They also have the 17th pick and the 33rd pick. So they expect to be very active. Of course, you know, one of the drawbacks is, Hey, there's no Zion Williamson. Um, there's no John Morant. There's not a Carl Anthony Towns, a LeBron James, kind of like a, a clear cut number one stud superstar. And so, um, they are going into this with their eyes wide open and trying to keep their options as open as possible in terms of whether you pick someone at number one, whether you move that pick. And so um, all in all, they're really excited just to have the currency, I think, and to be able to have the flexibility to, to try different things by having the number one pick. But I think they sure wish they would have got it last year uh, and been in your guys' shoes right now. John, you know, one thing I was wondering, you I'm sure you're really plugged in to the front office and the organization. I know you've been covering them for a while, but um, you talked about that aspect of it. I'm curious, you know, you also mentioned Zion. The it, There was probably like a month-long celebration, no joke, in New Orleans last year between the time they won the, the team won the lottery and then the draft night, which was just a huge party. What's your sense for the, the fans in Minnesota in terms of the reaction – they had to winning the lottery. I, I, I realize it would be completely unrealistic to expect it to be anything close to what happened in 2019 in New Orleans, but what, what's your sense of, of just their reaction to winning the lottery? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, certainly they're excited in terms of, you know, it's, it's better than the alternative. It's better than being, sure. you know, stuck down at six or, or seven, which is where they could have been. Um, but there definitely isn't that buzz. Um, there's not the same sort of, you know, really a feeling of you won the lottery. You, you yeah. hit the jackpot. I mean, you, to, to be able to to be in the shoes that that your organization was in down there and to, and to have Zion and knowing that you're going to get just this transcendent talent, but also this marketing, you know, dynamo and, and, and everything else that comes with it. Um, you know, th there just isn't that. I think there's a lot of fans that are saying, you know, hey, what you know, what is Lamelo Ball about? Hey, Anthony Edwards. They're trying to do um, some some research and yeah. and some scouting of their own to see what the possibilities are there. 
Um, and but I think like they're they're more so I think more fans here are maybe excited about the possibility of trading it for a more established player and seeing what Gerson Rosas and that front office could come up with then, you know, kind of scrambling to try and get their pre-orders in for a jersey of whoever might be that number one pick. John, it seems like obviously they probably won't look at a James Weissman from Memphis just from center positions already pretty much covered there with Carl Anthony Towns. But, you know, with, there's plenty of options to go at number one as far as position-wise. You think there's a particular position that they're eyeing or maybe just best fit as far as since they had those couple other picks in the first and early second round? Yeah, so, um, I mean, in a perfect world, there would be a floor spacing, shot blocking, power forward available right at the top to put next to Towns in the front court, help them defensively, kind of fit into what they want to do offensively, and and they could just go. Um, there is not that guy. Uh, you know, Wiseman is a center, and, and, and so there's some redundancy with Towns there. Um, and so you look at, I think that conventional wisdom says it's a th- kind of the a three player draft right at the top. And then there's some changes after that. And so, you know, then you're looking at Anthony Edwards from Georgia, the guard, the kind of more of a scorer type, and then you're, and LaMelo ball, the more of a point guard type. Um, what the wolves have said so far, which I think is the right approach is that when you are picking number one, you shouldn't be picking for fit. You should be picking best player available because they clearly need more talent to compete in the Western conference and, and to, and to jump up there. So I don't necessarily think that they will say, because we already have a point guard in D'Angelo Russell, they're not going to take, you know, a look at LaMelo ball. There are, they're taking a long, strong look at LaMelo ball. Um, but in terms of overall fit, um, I think you could make an argument that fit and talent, it might be Anthony Edwards as, as the kind of the, in the middle of that Venn diagram, um, you know, it, from a, if he, you could plug him in at the two and he could be a nice compliment to Russell and also help take some pressure off of towns offensively. There are a lot of questions about him, but in terms of physical tools and the, the the position that he does fit in, there are some boxes that you can check there with Anthony Edwards. John, I was reading, um, you guys did a mock draft with beat writers from The Athletic that I thought was really interesting and pretty entertaining. And one of the things that you mentioned in there, I think, was that you tried to pull off a trade. You tried to maneuver and wheel and deal. Um, what, were, what were some of the things that you learned from that? I mean, do you think that that's also kind of a, an option as well Based on, and how, how do you factor in the fact that it does feel like there's a consensus of three guys that are kind of that top tier and then there's a pool of players after that. Um, so how does that all fit together in terms of, you know, the likelihood of a trade or, or maybe the ability to, to do that? Yeah, so, you know, they, I, I think that the Timberwolves have made no secret that they're open for business on that number one pick and they're going to consider all sorts of options with it. Now, what I did find out in that exercise, just in kind of talking with the other teams in the top 10 of the draft, other beat writers, you know, hey, would you do, you know, number one for this player and and your pick or something like that. And a lot of the guys said, "Uh, not really, I'm not really enamored enough with number one to move up that high. And I do think some of the time the Timberwolves will be maybe running into some of that um, with with other teams in the draft or even other teams that are, that are down further out of the lottery. Um, 
you know, they, if there, if there was a more coveted uh, asset at the top or player at the top, I mean, I think it'd be a lot easier to move that pick. And so, um, you know, what we do know though, uh, from this Timberwolves front office in the short time that they've been here is they're very much in the Houston mold of being aggressive and trying to concoct three team, four team trades, you know, really, you know, kind of going at all sorts of different options. And so I think that they will keep things open. The thing that'll be difficult one is, you know, you have to find a team that is in love with one player, whether it's ball, whether it's Edwards, whether it's Wiseman and, and feels like it has to get up to one to get them. Two is that the golden state warriors also wouldn't mind trade number two, I don't think. And so, um, there's not a shortage of opportunities for other teams to try and get into the top two to get one of the players that they really like. So that's going to be the challenge. But I do think that uh, Gerson Rosa, Sachin Gupta, a lot of the the front office have shown a willingness to be really aggressive and really creative. And so I think that there are going to be many uh, iterations of complex deals that get talked about that are just hard to conceptualize right now, still, you know, three weeks before the draft. Last thing for me, before I go back to Daniel, um, you mentioned the aggressiveness of the front office that they've been in place, you know, for a year or so I've, I've lost track of time at this point, but I know that they were installed um, during the previous off season. Um, just to kind of backtrack a little bit to last season, um, the Pelicans got an up close look at the Timberwolves, I think twice after the trade deadline. What were your thoughts as, as we discuss, you know, what Minnesota needs to do in their roster and the pieces that they already have in place? What, what were your thoughts on um, the, the difference in the Timberwolves after the trade deadline? Um, not to feed your answer, but to me, it seemed like from afar that there was a little bit more talent and more upside to the roster after they made that trade. Um, so what, I guess, what was your impression of that trade and, and, the results of it, although I know, unfortunately, the season ended only a few weeks after the trade deadline, so you didn't get a great look at it. But um, what, what did you? What was your take on on that trade? Yeah, so it was. I mean, it was a series of trades right before the deadline, and and it was a massive overhaul of the roster. So I mean, by the time all the dust settled on the on the deals, there were two players left on the roster: Josh Okogi and Carl Anthony Towns, that Gerson Rosas inherited the previous May. So, I mean, it's just a massive, massive remake. Now, you're right that we didn't have a large sample size to really kind of see things start to come together. The other really difficult part of it was that um, Carl Anthony Towns only played in one game of the 14 after the trades. Um, and, and that game was not with D'Angelo Russell. So it's really, it was hard to kind of see, have have like tangible evidence of how that pairing looked together and and what kind of things it opens up. But I will say that the, the the overarching kind of impression that you get is that the moves that they made with Russell, Malik Beasley, Juancho Hernan Gomez, James Johnson, bringing those guys in, they just fit better with what Gerson Rosas wants to do conceptually. He wants to shoot a lot of threes. He wants to be um, uh, an up-tempo team in transition. So they have kind of sleeker, more athletic roster, and one that shoots a lot better prior to making those trades. I think they were 28th or 29th in three-point percentage. And then you get these other these guys in. Malik Beasley shot 42% with them. Uh, Juancho Hernan Gomez was over 40%. 
from three with them. Russell is, I think, 37, 38%. So they just have a lot more firepower, which is what they wanted. Um, we, you know, there's still a lot of questions to be answered about whether, you know, Russell and Towns can be a good enough pairing to really make you a factor in the Western Conference playoffs and things like that. But I do think you just saw uh, a roster that was a lot less square peg round hole and just fits a lot better with what they want to do. And I think that will help them long-term going forward, just in establishing that identity that they want to have. I kind of want to piggyback off of what Jim said and kind of how you answered as far as long-term goals for this team. When you talk about maybe shopping that number one pick to try to get an experienced veteran and maybe move back. Um, how many pieces do you think they need to maybe start thinking about contending in the Western Conference? We all know how deep it's going to be. We've seen some even the lower team, Sacramento's going to get better. Phoenix, how they ended in the bubble that they know. You have the Pelicans that were just short. And, of course, you have Golden State that's probably going to get back to where they were before all the injuries. So, realistically, um, is this kind of a long-term plan for Minnesota to try to get back to where they were as far as competing for the Western Conference? Or are they trying to do this maybe a little quicker um, this time around and get back there sooner rather than later? Yeah, we, we, we talked to Gerson Rosas this week um, and, you know, asked him kind of a, a similar question of what the, what the outlook is. And what he basically said was a lot is going to depend on what happens in this draft coming up, because let's say they can't pull off a deal or they just decide they like one of these players so much that they stick at one 17 and 33. Well, now all of a sudden the youngest roster in the NBA, which they are right now, gets even younger. And so I think that kind of extends the timeline out even a little bit further in terms of trying to get to competitiveness. And uh, But if they're able to swing a big trade and maybe you add um, one or two pieces that are you know, not necessarily Devin Booker, Ben Simmons type, um, you know, megawatt all-stars or things like that, but just quality uh, young veterans that can fit in provide some leadership play some roles around towns and russell you know then that expedites things a little bit at least i still think realistically daniel that they're uh they're probably thinking that they're at least a, a season away um you know the western conference is brutal and there's just so much talent and they have such a long ways to go but i do think that you will you will see them try to make big strides this this upcoming season to at least you know, be kind of in the playoff mix a little bit in the conversation, uh, win some games, establish that identity. And then by 2021, 2022, that's, I think, when you really want to be making your move with Towns and Russell kind of really getting into their primes with, you know, another season under this system and, and everyone a little bit more familiar and a little more opportunity to, to, to add free agents and, and, and things like that. So, um, I don't think there's any illusions that they're going to just leap right back into the playoff picture next year. But I do think that they want within the next two, you know, year and a half to really be starting to get into that conversation again. Should be real interesting come November 18th as the dominoes will start to fall after the Minnesota Timberwolves pick at number one. That's John Krasinski, senior writer for the athletic covering the Timberwolves NBA and Vikings, a great follow on Twitter. You can do so at John Krasinski. J-O-N-K-R-A-W-C-Z-Y-N-S-K-I. John, I really appreciate the time. This was a really good start to our draft preview, and we'll talk to you down the road as we get closer. All right, thanks for having me, guys. And there he goes again, John Krasinski, senior writer for The Athletic covering the Minnesota Timberwolves. And it's going to be interesting, Jim, as we kind of wrap things up here uh, when talking about that number one pick. 
Um, he kind of said it and he brought it up as far as the mock drafts. You know, sometimes it's, oh, we really don't know who we're going to pick at number one. Let's try to shop it. But because of the uncertainty of some of the players at the top, like you mentioned, there's no Zion Williamson, there's no John Morant, that there might not be a lot of willing trade partners to really get up there at number one. So that can make things interesting uh, come November 18th as far as what Minnesota does, whether it's keeping it or, or try to see if they can find that right person to fit there in Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sit here and make any predictions whatsoever because I, I could easily be wrong. But yeah. it, the way that he described it, it does seem like it, it is maybe more unlikely or more difficult for them to be able to pull something off due to, as you said, the lack of, you know, driven demand to say, okay, we have to get this one guy or we have to get, I think it's possible that there might be teams out there or it's more likely that there's teams out there that have, that want to get into the top three maybe, and they have a certain guy that they like a lot. And maybe that there's a way that um, a team could pull off a trade. And we might get into that more as we go further down the draft board onto golden state and Charlotte that are picking second and third, but it, it is really interesting that the way things line up this year, that although there is a, a set of three players that it seems like everyone is speaking about as the, that top group of guys of, of those three, um, there isn't the belief maybe necessarily that, or, or the certainty that one of any of those three guys are like a lock in terms of what, what their career is going to end up being. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But I mean, it was really interesting listening to, John discussed Minnesota. I think they're one of the more kind of intriguing teams in the NBA in terms of there's a lot of different directions they can go. They also, even though maybe the wins weren't there at the end of last season, I think the talent is definitely there. So they're, the, the Wolves are a team that I definitely will be interested in watching whenever we kick off uh, next season. Before I let you go, I, I kind of just thought about this as far as, you know, this offseason is going to be a little different as far as – I'm not sure how much of a combine we're going to see based on COVID-19, mm-hmm. but also not, we don't know how many in-person interviews or whether they're going to be zoom interviews. I think teams are able to have in-person interviews if they're flown in um, to your team facilities, but I feel like that could play a big role in the top three based on if these, if these teams, whether it's seven, eight, nine, that want to trade up may not know as much about the person that they may have in years. Plus no March madness this year. I feel like that can change the process up about how teams approach this draft as well. Yeah, it definitely could. And, you know, this is a maybe a whole different conversation altogether, but I do think that as time goes on, the interviews are becoming more and more important as far as teams just weighing the maturity and the character of players. It's always been something that's been important, obviously. But I think that as, as time, at least in my time in the NBA, going back a decade and a half, it does seem like that's something that's more and more a part of the conversation. I guess the challenge this year is, as you mentioned, is that you're not necessarily going to get to talk to, you're definitely not going to get to talk to every player in person that you want to speak with, but through the technology that we have, you're still going to be able to do some extensive interviews. Um, You're not going to be able to take people out to dinner, which I think a lot of the executives like to do, not just to see their table manners and how they (laughs) handle their utensils, but just also the way that they um, treat the waiters and the people that work in the restaurants and the cab drivers and the Uber drivers. So um, I think uh, that element of it is probably going to be very minimal this year, but you're still going to be able to talk to guys and, and we'll see how much that factors into uh, the decision-making. I know that if I was in, in that position where I had to make that big of a decision, I would want to know every single possible thing that I could about every guy that I'm seriously considering drafting, because as we know, 
the stuff off the court can dictate both good and bad, whether a player is successful or whether, whether you made a great pick or whether you wasted the pick. So that's definitely a, a huge factor with the draft. Yeah. You've seen me eat in fine dining restaurants when we're on the road, Jim, and I feel like I wouldn't be very great in those settings. You know, how many forks <laughs> there are on one side, how many spoons, which one goes with what where the <laughs> napkin goes. I just, it's going to be tough for me. So and I'm you, glad and, I don't have to worry about it. And you also tend to just berate the wait, the waiter sometimes when your food isn't out fast enough or they didn't cook your steak exactly the precise way that you, <laughs> you laid out for them. So, yeah, I think that would put you, you, you would be red flagged maybe based on your your table etiquette if you were one of the draft prospects. I think my whole life is a red flag, but I expect excellence from them, Jim, and, and I don't expect anything less. And so when I'm with you, I expect everything to be in tier topped condition. So it hopefully we'll get to that point um, here next year. And hopefully, just like all of you, we hope that SeatGeek can't wait to get you back in the stands to cheer on the Pelicans and sing along to our favorite songs again. They're using this time to make discovering, buying, and selling tickets to events in the Big Easy well easier. Plus, every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is protected by their buyer guarantee, which means you'll get your money back or better if your event is canceled. Guaranteed. Download the SeatGeek app today, and when the time is right, let's go. Well, it's time to go here on the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. We've been doing one a week, and it's sure you all retired of the NBA Finals recaps as we were kind of ready to put a bow on this season. That time has finally come. So now we're getting geared up for the NBA draft on November 18th. A great start with John Krasinski today. We have another great guest for you on Friday, Nick Friedel, ESPN NBA, NBA reporter uh, for ESPN. He covered the Golden State Warriors for the beginning of last season. Um, we'll get into that with him on Friday. That'll be pick number two. And then we'll get into this on Friday. Next week, it'll be the Charlotte Hornets and the Chicago Bulls. Jim, we'll talk to you on Friday, my friends. I look forward to kind of getting to know these teams and what they might do come November 18th. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I feel like I'm getting more informed as each day goes by, and it, it's definitely making me more optimistic and looking forward to uh, draft night in the middle of November. Of course, if there's anything related to a new coach for the Pelicans, we'll jump right into that with another podcast as well, so things could change here in the next couple of weeks. For Jim, I'm Daniel. Thanks for listening to the Pelicans podcast presented by Seeky.